Yellow friends and listeners, Raya here and welcome to Smart But Dumb, a podcast where I bring my friends who are smarter than me to tell me something I don't know. Remember that episodes come out every Wednesday and Friday, so hit subscribe on Smart But Dumb on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your other podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends to help the pod get out there. You can also follow all podcast updates on Instagram at Smart But Dumb Pod. Today's episode is all about esports, a world that is so unknown to me, it's insane. I stay far away from video games as much as I can, but I've been hearing so much about the industry, especially since the lockdown, that I decided that I could no longer live in the dark. To help me on my quest is DC-based attorney Nicholas Sabit, who my first ever friend and wonderful friend in life, Lana, also hotshot DC lawyer, introduced me to. Nicholas tells me all about how the world has pivoted to esports a lot more recently, what the intricacies of the industry are, and how the actual business of esports is growing. And I'll give you a hint, at a rapid pace. I hope you learned as much from Nicholas as I did in today's episode. Let's get to it. Hey, Nicholas. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, thank you. You're, you know, I'm I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I wanted to talk to you. We were introduced by Lana, so shout out to Lana uh, yep. for that because <laughs> I wanted you to demystify a whole world that I know pretty much nothing about, which is the world of esports. And I know that you know more than a thing or two ab- about that. So sure. so before we get into the topic discussion itself, why don't you just for a little bit of context, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Absolutely. So um, thank you so much for having me. Again, big shout out to Lana. I appreciate yes. her uh, <laughs> linking us up. That's great. Um, so I, my name is Nicholas Sabet. I'm an associate attorney at the global law firm of k and Gates. Um, we have over 40 offices worldwide, which is, uh, you know, lends itself a lot to the, the international deal work, the international esports work that we do. Um, myself personally, I'm a corporate lawyer by training, but lately have really found myself digging into a passion of mine, which is esports. As you know, as the market grows, which is probably why we're having this conversation now, just because it, it is a market that's exploding right now. It's getting a lot of media attention. Um, and, and as a result, I kind of pivoted during the recent COVID you know, shutdown in the US to doing a lot of heavy esports work. And so we help clients, whether they be teams, entrepreneurs, um, investors, sponsors, you know, you, you name it, anyone within the esports ecosystem, we kind of help them navigate the legal waters of that uh, from anything from trademarks to real estate incentives for headquarters to, of course, you know, million dollar investment rounds. So that's a little bit about what I do and just kind of background on me. And, and other than that, I can just say, you know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., but. Uh, Nation's you know, capital. Yep. Yep. That's right. <laughs> uh, so. That's the, you know, you, you've started off this conversation perfectly because I think there's a lot, like you said, I think that a lot of people are talking about esports right now and 
before we get into the nitty gritty of the business of esports, which is what yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, why don't we start by taking a step back and you maybe explaining what exactly are esports and what is it that we're actually hearing about right now? Yeah, yeah, sure. So esports at its core, right, is uh, competitive video game play, right? It's, it's nothing more than that. It's the idea that you have people all around the world who um, are not necessarily blocked from each other by barriers of language or uh, geographic distance, but, but can play online or in person uh, competitively. And so esports is just that notion. And, and we're starting to see that there's a real attraction in the market for people to consume content and watch uh, you know, videos and streams and even attend live events for those top, top echelon of players. So that's where esports has now really kind of become uh, a professional sport. You know, there's professional players and there's fans and sponsors and, and everything you would associate with traditional professional sport. But at its core, esports is just nothing more than, like I said, professional video game playing. The industry, I will just say as a whole, I like to break it down into two things. It's a tech, uh, you know, industry because it involves video games and sponsors and, you know, tracking and media rights and all this kind of stuff. And it's also a marketing industry. So between marketing and tech, those are probably the two bubbles that I would think would fall into in the traditional business world. Oh, that's interesting. And, and we'll touch upon that later in our conversation, because I, I think that's a part of the industry that it is one that's not only really intricate, but one that, you know, is actually a lot more strategic than people would think. So before we get to that, then how did esports, which I'm so glad you broke it down straight off the bat, because I think that a lot of people like me who know absolutely nothing about this just think that like any kind of game that is a sports game is an esport, but in fact, no, it's any game that's played competitively. So that's yeah. That you, that you uh, gave me that definition. But how did esports then, as a category or as an activity, what have you come to be? Yeah. So so I think really you can trace the beginning of what we now know as esports back to, you know, as early as 2010 or as late as 2015. I mean, it depends, right? It's, it's always kind of like, right. how, de how dedicated are you um, <laughs> to see when it started? But I would say 2015 is probably fair, where it really started to gain traction. Uh, there were big scale investments that started to come into play. And uh, more and more people started to really identify with it. And, and I think it's partially generational because probably by that, you know, 2015, uh, 2013, 2015 period, um, a lot of us who had grown up playing video games kind of got to the age where we were entering the professional world. We were looking for jobs. And so the business side of it created itself to, to allow essentially uh, the industry to be formally born, right? It was no longer just right. a hobby. And I think that's only exploded now. And I think it, it kind of, you know, it bears mentioning that the reason we are seeing such explosive growth right now is because of COVID. I mean, there's no two ways about it, right? That, that at least in the U.S., there's so many reports about how, you know, people are basically stuck in their house doing 
you know, working from home and spending a lot of time with a significant other, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> they're, they're escaping by playing video games, which is only increasing the number of people that are competing um, or focused on esports. And again, remember, you know, esports could theoretically be, you know, any any Joe playing in, in any, you know, town in the middle of nowhere um, on his computer, in the same way that it could be any person playing uh, you know, on his Xbox in Australia or India or Vietnam, but right. um, but competitive play really stems from you know any one of those players that I just mentioned becoming good enough to start uh, competing on the high level and, and earning up their ranking and, and developing right. some kind of a following. That's interesting because I feel like we've seen this democratization and especially monetization in, in other industries. One that comes to mind is social media. Like I, you know, social media, you know, we've had it for, for a while, whatever you consider that to be, but making money off of it and kind of reaching the next level, like you said, is, is something that's relatively new. So it's, it's interesting to see that that's something that's also happened in in this industry and esports i'll say esports e the thing about it that's, that's so interesting is it's built off the video game industry right that's for sure and so when you look at it like the overwatch league for example is a fairly fit you know well-known league worldwide right now there's 200 players who play professionally in that there's 40 million people around the world that play overwatch Right. Wow. So, okay, yeah. so put that in perspective, right? You have the top 200 players competing who got there by doing smaller tournaments and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, as you said, I, I love that word democratization you used because the thing about esports that breaks down so many barriers is there is no theoretical language barrier because the, the developer can change the language, whether it's being marketed in Spain or the US or uh, know Africa it doesn't necessarily matter where you're right. playing you can play the game as long as you basically have a, a setup a power and sometimes internet access right like the barriers to entry unlike other sports are are less so right like it, it's way more democratized and yeah in a way cheaper I mean, right right in a way I mean it cost Nike you know probably three dollars to to build a soccer ball and ship right. it to someone in, in anywhere across the world, right? And playing esports requires a gaming setup and and you know a television. That's true, and, and buying the game and all that. Right. Stuff. So that that by itself could easily get to you know the minimum hundreds of dollars. But I think with the democratization comes into place now, you're seeing a lot of people play on their phones. So there's like a huge explosion in South America or in India and surrounding countries of people playing. And consuming content related to esports on their phones, right? So okay. every, everyone's got a cell phone and everyone's able to play. You know, Counter Strike Go, CSGO is a huge platform that is developing a competitive scene very quickly. And it's you play it off your cell phone, right? When you go to competitions for these for these mobile platforms, you see a bunch of guys standing up there who are playing on their cell phone, which I get it is crazy to some people, but you know. There are a lot of people who are willing to sponsor and pay to watch this stuff. Yeah, I was going to say this is, you know, from from what you've told me from the conversations that we have uh, that we've had, it's 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 crazy how big this part of the video gaming industry is that I think people don't realize. Um, 
to kind of put this into context for people that maybe for our listeners that maybe already play games, what you mentioned a famous league already, what are some of the most popular games or, or leagues or what have you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, and you, I want to go back to something you said a, a few questions earlier, which is kind of like, okay, so we have esports as an industry, but it's not just one sport. Like there are multiple different games. So if you think about it, like I said, esports is competitive video game playing, but then what video games are you competitively playing? So right. the question you're at, the, the question you're asking, which I think is great, is kind of like, what are the biggest titles that people are playing on? Each of which can technically be considered, you know, in their own right, a platform that people are playing esports on. So you have Call of Duty, Overwatch, um, League of Legends, World of Warcraft, uh, Valorant is one that's come out recently and is and is gaining a lot of buzz because you know there's this there's this idea behind Valorant that it's fairly simple and maybe actually won't be like a generally released title, right? It won't be a Call of Duty that floods the market and gets you know, everyone from six to 65 to play it, it right. might end up just being a, you know, mainly competitively focused game, which is an interesting concept. Would it be considered then a game that would be more mainstream versus a little bit more niche? Yeah. So, so, so the Valorant's an interesting example because there's discussions right now about it not being mainstream, right? Sure. You can download Valorant and go play, but the thought process is maybe there won't be so much marketing and push into making it a household game that every six-year-old or every 15-year-old has maybe like fortnite you know fortnite's a great example because everyone is playing that they're playing it you know there's five-year-olds playing it on their mom's ipad there's 15-year-olds playing it in their basement there's 35-year-olds playing it when they're bored uh and, and there's 65-year-olds playing it because they enjoy it um and then there's a massive competitive and content creation side to all of that but right and it's kind of, you know, streamed into our pop culture as well. Because like you mm. said, there's been this push into whether it's people downloading it or just, you know, name recognition, brand awareness, that yeah. something like Fortnite and Call of Duty has almost become part of at least our generation's, you know, pop culture. Even if yeah. you don't play it, we know about it. Oh, that's right. And, and Fortnite is interesting in its own right because it's now shifting. There it's shifting it in a way to you know to the conversation that it might become kind of its own social network, right? Because which right. is interesting for a video game to become its own social network and maybe it'll develop like a kind of virtual reality-esque uh, ability for people to connect to each other on a social network platform because you have, you know, concerts that are happening in game. You have, you know, outfits and skins that are being developed by companies. Um, you have, you know, all sorts of different sponsors that are that are jumping in to support the community because they see that it's just got so many people that are connected to it around the world. You can no longer ignore it. Right. Which which is you touch upon an interesting point because then what are then some of the roles in the business and what are their differences? So uh, what comes to mind is, you know, a player versus a team versus just a fan. So somebody who just watches it versus a brand. Like, how does how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So so there's definitely the largest group of people is definitely the fans, right? Because like I said, okay. I mean, with that example with League of Legends, right? Um, there's only, or Overwatch, I think it was, where, where there's 200 pro gamers, but 40 million people play. So, I mean, the <laughs> proportion on that is 
pretty severely favoring the fans right, and the absolutely. people of light. But you're absolutely right. I mean, on the business, moving towards the business side of this, there are teams, right? And teams usually, uh, you know, at least in my view, a lot of the successful ones have multiple platforms. So they're really, think about them as organizations, right? So, I mean, a lot of listeners might be familiar with a more traditional sports example, like FC Barcelona. FC Barcelona is most known for their very famous and high-achieving soccer club. But uh, some may know and some may, some others may be surprised to know that FC Barcelona has a volleyball team. They have a handball team. They have... Oh, yeah, um, I didn't know that at all. Yes, yeah, they have all of these, you know, other less popular sports. And, you know, the basketball team, right? In their own right, those teams are actually probably pretty good because they are an FC Barcelona team, which means you get the brand power behind that, if you will. But, right. uh, you know, their lead team is the soccer team and they have these, you know, auxiliary teams. So, so esports um, teams, organizations really have, you know, one team that competes in Rocket League, one team that competes in Valorant, one team that competes in Call of Duty, and they do it all underneath the same banner. Right. So like, okay, yeah, I see. Under the same you know, umbrella. Exactly. So you know, very famous one here in the U.S. is Phase Clan. Uh, you know, they have multiple different teams and content creation platforms. Then you have Cloud Nine or Excel. Uh, you know, who are not not that Phase isn't global, but you know, more on the kind of European side. Uh, those two teams, and so that's the organization side. And we've touched on the players a little bit, and then you have. You know, I call the support groups. So you have, yeah, the lawyers, you have the doctors and chiropractors even that are kind of like getting into this because they see that it's, uh, you know, it's something that either they're passionate about or that there's something they see, you know, a possibility of developing their own niche in. Um, there's organizers, tournament organizers, and, and tons of, of course, advertisers. And, and then sitting on top is the kind of kingmakers, if you will, are the publishers, the game publishers. So Riot, okay, yeah. game, Riot Games, uh, Activision Blizzard, um, and there are a few other smaller ones, but but really the, the few big ones are EA, Activision Blizzard, and Riot, um, who they control it. So, you know, we, we talked about this before, but I think it's, it's an interesting kind of parallel, which is, you think about traditional sports, no one owns a soccer ball, right? It's not that, you know, you can walk into any store and, and buy a soccer ball and just use the soccer ball at your will. Um, and no one necessarily, you know, I'm sure somewhere along the line, someone had a patent to a soccer ball. I don't know, maybe, but, but it's not like anyone owns. Right. Ball. Yeah. Whereas in esports, the developers, they own the game, right? So if you want to do a competitive call of duty game, you need to be able to secure the publisher's permission and, and probably their, uh, you know, activation with you. Right. right. Because, that's interesting. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. parallel. And, and you can, yeah, you can, you can go to the store and buy a copy of Call of Duty and, and go home and play it at your leisure. The same way that you can buy a soccer ball and play it at your leisure at home. But um, when you get to the higher level, you know, it has to do with kind of the technology transactions and the IP rights and everything like that. I mean, the developer is going to be involved if you have a $2 million prize pool for, for a Call of Duty match. Right. That's insane that that even exists, but it just yeah. goes to show how this is like such yeah, an, yeah. you know, maybe I wouldn't say unknown to many, but it, it's definitely a part of the video gaming industry that is just still 
still growing so much and I don't think people are realizing what at what rate and how much it's growing like we're talking big big numbers here yeah totally I mean look there are I think again going back to kind of like the reason maybe we're even having this conversation right now is because a lot of people who either didn't know or this was kind of a peripheral on their radar they're now realizing that this is a big deal so does esports have the possibility to become as big as the NFL and NBA, absolutely. I really truly believe that the possibility is there. Do I think that that will happen? I have no idea. Right. My, my gut inkling is to say no. I think we'll eventually end up at a place where esports is, is the size of uh, Formula One or is the same size as the UFC in the US or- Which would still um, be huge. You which know, would still be to, huge, yeah. right? And we're certainly getting there. I mean, realize that Basically, more people watched, um, I think it was the League of Legends championship, than, than they watched the Super Bowl last year or the year before. I forget exactly what the statistic is, but I mean, that's like a mind-boggling number. Yeah, right? that's that, crazy. Yeah, absolutely. That, that like for those people... who, yeah, sorry, for those who don't live in the U.S., like the Super Bowl is the most televised event. So, so what Nicholas is saying is a, is a huge, huge deal. Yeah, and, and, and so, I mean, the industry is probably going to be valued at well above, not well above, but above a billion dollars in 2020. Um, you know, there's a couple, you know, and I say a couple, but I mean hundreds of millions of eyeballs that are watching and they right. engage with esports content. Um, so it's a big deal, and that starts to catch the eye of, you know, the Geico's, which is an insurance company, for those who don't know, that the... Coca-Cola's um, of the world and, and wants them to pay attention because they all of a sudden see a branding or a marketing play that they can right, make absolutely. to reach out to so many people. Which you touch upon an interesting point here because I wanted to ask you what the revenue streams were exactly in this space. Like, How does it make money? How, how do people make money off of it? How does that relationship or that part yeah. of it work? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, on the small scale, right? I mean, like players and players get paid by their teams, and you know, that's yeah. You can have significant salaries. You can have players that are making six figures, right? I mean, that's crazy to think that you can that's have crazy, a fifteen, yeah. a fifteen-year-old or a twenty-one-year-old who's making six figures of just playing competitive video games. But uh, I think that just speaks to the level of investment that's coming in to esports organizations. Um, but then you have uh, sponsors who are trying to, you know, fight over each other to get to get these young young and old eyeballs, right? I, I think the other reason it's so attractive for companies is because you have the, maybe the most malleable group that they always want to target, which is kids. So if your state farm, the example I always give is your state farm, which is, uh, you know, a, a very large insurance provider in the U.S. If you uh, you have no relationship. To video games, you have no relationship to esports, right? You're an insurance agency, and and you're always struggling to be kind of like the hip young uncle at the party who can relate to the younger kids. Yeah, absolutely. But everyone just looks at you like, yeah, okay, like why do I care? But if you involve yourself in esports, all of a sudden you're grabbing a group of people who, when they grow up and they need insurance, there's going to be a bevy of people for them to pick from, and chances are. I mean, they'll the remember State Farm. Yeah, right. The marketing principle is that if, if they love, you know, 
uh, Cloud9 Gaming, which is not currently sponsored by State Farm, to my to my knowledge, but let's say they are, if they were a big supporter of the Cloud9 organization, the Cloud9 teams, and they saw that you know State Farm was all over those guys' jerseys when they were 15 or they were 21, when they are 25 and 30 and need, need insurance, they're going to go pick State Farm. Right? Because, Absolutely. They'll uh, they remember, they'll, they'll just have that ingrained into all the right. content that they've been consuming, like a good right. neighbor, State Farm is there. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's right, that's right. And so, and so to that vein in the revenue, you know, the sponsor is going to pay a lot of sponsorship dollars to whatever organization that is to slap their name across the front of the jerseys. State Farm will eventually make money on the back end from those kids who realize that they love State Farm and they have a relationship and a loyalty to it and they want to purchase insurance from them. Uh, the players are going to make money because State Farm and other sponsors have poured money into whatever organization they're part of. Um, you know, th there's going to be tournaments that occur where players are going to be wearing those jerseys and those tournaments are usually not only heavily sponsored, but they're also, uh, you know, kind of there's ticket sales and there's revenue being, being you know, churned out, just the live right. event portion of that. Um, so, so, I mean, the money side of it is really... Again, the, the, the creation of money side is certainly uh, completely a, you know, similar to just any marketing scheme or any marketing scheme is not the right word, but any marketing kind of company that you would imagine, especially one that's related to traditional sports. And then the other real revenue is just anything that you would associate with your favorite football, soccer, you know, basketball club or, or team or league. It's the same thing. The revenue streams right. are, are almost all identical. The only the only way that it varies is um, for influencers and for content creators. You have guys like you know the most famous one is Ninja, right? Ninja is a very famous Fortnite player who, okay. uh, I believe, and I and I I hope I'm not speaking correctly, but I but I believe it to be that he's no longer playing competitively, to my knowledge. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure he's not but he decided a long time ago that it just made more sense to create content and create videos and stream and right. post videos to YouTube and post videos to streaming accounts and sponsors would jump at him because you know, there's millions of people watching his streams and he can post, you know, Coke advertising on the side of his stream or on the side of his YouTube video and get a lot of ad generation revenue there. Um, right. And so that's as opposed that's to just playing. Right, exactly. And, and that's maybe the one place where the revenues that you would associate with the traditional sports team or league kind of change is that there's this uh, consistent watching of either old streams or there's this consistent watching of not only the competitions themselves, but independent streams that could be happening on a Monday night at nine o'clock, right? Where, where right, absolutely. An influencer or even a professional player hops online to practice and is streaming to a few thousand people. Uh, you know, it, it's basically equivalent to like, for instance, the Lakers practicing and a bunch of people watching the Lakers practice. Normally, right, only the hardcore Lakers fans would care. And there's not a lot of ad money that would probably get thrown at that. But in this case, when esports players practice, people want to watch. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting about this as well is what you've mentioned is due to the lack of geographical barrier of entry, this is not when you know when you compare it to an actual live sports event you can tune in from wherever you are which already the numbers 
are already completely different. We're talking a whole different ball game yeah. just of that alone. And I think it's really interesting how you mentioned, you know, the companies that are getting involved, like you said, like State Farm has nothing to do with, with video games. It's just so interesting to see how it's a pure marketing play and how they've, you know, these big companies have positioned themselves in this industry because they just, they know that it's going to get huge. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's that, very true. It's non-endemic sponsorship, we call it. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Okay, great. So you taught me a new word, so that's perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, something that I wanted to also touch upon just because of everything that's been happening in the last couple of weeks in the U.S., can you maybe talk about how brands, games, companies have been positioning themselves in regards to the Black Lives Matter movement? Sure. How has that been looking? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Because like I said at the outset, esports is very much a uh, media and marketing um, you know, enterprise and industry. So to that regard, you, know, you, you see a lot of these uh, clothing brands, media companies, record labels, putting out a lot of content and a lot of kind of announcements about their stance on the support for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And, you know, esports is certainly no different, right? Nintendo, Activision, uh, you know, game-specific titles, Fortnite, you know, I don't know, uh, World of Warcraft, they, they've all put out their respective tweets, right? Um, to show their support and, and to get their community that, that follows and engages with them to at least clue into the fact that this is such a big deal and that the change needs to happen now and that their company supports it, right? I think yeah. what's been interesting is, you know, I'm based in DC and, and like I said, there's a lot of protests and a lot of action happening here, which I think is wonderful on a personal level. But what's interesting is to me, those, those organizations that are taking the extra step um, now, you know, I think as a whole, and I'll come back to the extra step in a minute, as a whole, you know, we did talk about the democratization of, of video games and esports being such a global thing that has such a wide spanning reach, right? There, there's a competitive team in, um, I think it's Sweden, somewhere, I think it's Sweden, I actually wrote an article about it once, but I, I think it's Sweden. They're 65, right? Their average age is like 65, 70. Right, and they play right. competitively. Whereas you That's have, crazy. you know, teams and, and players who are 15 in the U.S. who are making money off of you know million-dollar prize pools um, for their respective games. So that just shows you the breadth. But where I think it's underrepresented is certainly in the minority groups. Esports is not, to my knowledge and, and to my experience, something that is necessarily broken into the most diverse landscape. Which okay, I think is in a way, in a way, sad. But I think it also just speaks to there is a tremendous amount of cost that comes with this. Um, you know, if you want to be a professional gamer, you need to probably have, uh, unless you're on a mobile platform side of it, you need to have a expensive gaming rig with, uh, you know, a lot of extra kind of hardware gear right yeah. exactly i mean it, it's it's not a cheap endeavor like any kind of professional sport is right um, yeah that's true it, it required you know traditional sports require trainers and you know whatever else but um so I, I think that's part of it but but i think we're starting to see more and more that uh 
you know, the global reach of this, people playing on their phones, just the overall ability of people to show what their natural talents are is bringing more diversity to esports. Um, so, so that is that's something that I'll just say, yeah. which is, I think is a, a great push, right? Which is overall there needs to be more diversity in everything that we do, but I think certainly in esports it's starting to come more and more, which I'm very pleased to see. Back to your back to your question on the gaming side of it, right? You know, companies and, and such forth. Uh, as to what they're doing. Um, Call of Duty, for instance, uh, has, has pushed out a patch or a software update that uh, basically on all of their load screens, it mentions uh, you know, their support for the Black Lives Matter movement and it supports kind of like a, you know, a very brief sentence or two as to uh, why, you know, why it's so important to change happens now and should have probably happened before. I mean, should have definitely happened before. And, and, you know, it's a little summary on that, which is interesting. I mean, think about that. You have a bunch of people around the world that are playing Call of Duty and every time that they load up their favorite game to either play online or play locally with, you know, the, their friends or just by, their, by themselves, they are seeing this um, announcement from the game developer that isn't necessarily, in my opinion, a a kind of way for the game developer to promulgate, you know, their support. I think it's also a way to just make it continuously current and make people continuously aware and focused. That yeah, this and and almost like force and force to have this message because this is something that can no longer be ignored. Like we're at such an important turning point, I think, especially yeah. in U.S. history, that. Uh, like you were saying, like the Call of Duty example that you and I had discussed uh, earlier, you know, off the pod. I I, I just think it, it's really important, like you said, for for brands to make their stance really clear and and just take advantage of of the like you said the number of eyes that are on them. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's right. And and, and the more companies, right? I think companies, right, in this day and age, they can they can do there's traditional things and typical things they can do. They can donate, they can, you know, tweet about it, you know, they can close their stores for a day or put up signs or create a campaign. I mean, that's all good. And certainly it raises awareness and helps the movement progress forward. But what's the actual change that we're going to have that's, that's brought about? And I think that's so critical. And what are people doing on the individual level to educate themselves and to make sure that the momentum is, is staying? So for instance, that's why I, I, you know, is it going to overnight change anything? Absolutely not, right? I think right, so much totally. into this. But, but what I like about the Call of Duty load screen a lot is that it, it forces um, even people who may not, for some crazy reason, agree with what this movement is all about. It forces them to look at it every Absolutely, day. Absolutely, totally. It, it forces those of us who are in support of the movement to constantly be reminded that this is a big thing uh, because it's just, it's, you know, and I hope they keep it on for a while, right? That, that it's just, you know, the momentum is still there and it just reminds everyone. It's a great kind of like way Absolutely. of always being present, especially if, you know, video games are a, a big part of your life. And, and just a great, a great use of your platform for yeah. social impact, you know? Yeah, totally. Thank you for that. That's really interesting. And I didn't want that to go on unsaid. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's good to hear that, you know, there are a lot of companies kind of 
taking advantage of their of their viewership and their status to make, like you said, a message that's very important to be sent, put out there. Uh, before I let you go, could you just maybe then talk about or leave us with some bullet points as to what you think the industry's opportunities are moving forward and why sure. you think that we should be paying attention, essentially? Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't... I think the, the biggest one that it's still at the forefront of everyone's mind um, is, is just the idea that COVID has essentially, you know, COVID-19 around the world has propelled esports forward. Uh, you know, it, what esports was designed to achieve and what esports was planning on achieving in probably a two to three year time period over the next, you know, two to three years, you know, it's, it's called 2020 to 2023. The forecast for that was achieved in the past two to three months. That's right? crazy. So we have we have rocketed forward at an abnormally fast speed, uh, which is great. And I think it's something that the industry has certainly handled. Right? You know, a lot of times when you see such rapid growth, things tend to fall apart. Yeah, they um, can't step up to the plate. You mean? Right. And and I think it's a testament to the organizations and the companies and the people within esports that they've been able to achieve that. And I think it just shows that they were ready for that kind of propulsion. So I think that we will just continue to grow, especially in a post COVID world where, um, you know, hopefully we don't see a second resurgence, but, but certainly, uh, you know, people are going to remember that when the world shut down and at least I hope people that are going to remember that when the world shut down and there were no live sports, you know, ESPN was broadcasting, um, Esports matches, right? And that's pretty right. huge. And so I hope it's going to continue to capture people's attention. On the business side of things, I think, um, you know, like anything, we're still going to see startups and companies get into the esports space and try to find their own niche and, and grow. I think the established teams and organizations are only going to continue to receive funding. I think you're going to see a lot of people uh, put more money into, you know, a lot of the clients I work with, a lot of the a lot of the work that I do is often focused around growing esports teams or esports businesses. And, you know, we see a lot of money coming in. I mean, the fact that, for instance, people are still, you know, from the highest level to the most grassroots organizations, believe it yeah, or not. Yeah, just ride past, for opportunity. Yeah, in, in these past couple months, markets have been, uh, you know, very, very in flux and people have been kind of reserved about their money and whatever. But, you know, I've seen firsthand that people have been investing in esports, right? And so when you think about that, that like, you know, no one's really sure as to what what they want to do with their money. Somehow these esports teams are, are doing a good enough job showing themselves as valuable opportunities for people to invest in them, um, which is really yeah. interesting. And I think that's only going to be very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you so much. Before yeah. I let you go would you mind then telling our listeners where they can find you on the internet and also if you could please share a song that you think everybody needs to know about yeah yeah so so uh everyone can find me on the internet on my linkedin page it's just nicholas sabet last name s-a-b-e-t um i'm always on linkedin super connected uh to, to that in terms of always checking it messaging and, and so forth um Perfect. So hit to, up, hit up Nicholas if you have any questions. Yeah, yeah. Always happy to make introductions and, and, and such. Um, and a song, you know, one song is difficult. I was thinking about this. It's a good, it's a good question. I, 
if I can, I will just adapt, if you don't mind. Um, Go ahead, my, of course. My own way to uh, two artists that people are either familiar with or not familiar with, but it kind of just shows like the broad spread of music in my brain, which is, I think Frank Sinatra is an excellent artist and one that should never Agreed. die. Um, so I, I love his stuff. That's on one, one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is uh, rap. And I, you know, one, one guy who I like a lot, who's around the same age as me, and I've always been super impressed with is A Boogie with the Hoodie, uh, which is, you know, Frank Sinatra, A Boogie with the Hoodie. Those are my two, you know. Okay, broad, great. Broad I love it. Of, yeah, I was so, going to so, say the love the broad ends of the spectrum. This is what yeah, we, exactly. the kind of stuff we love. So Perfect. Uh, those, are, those are my two go-to guys. But Perfect. Uh, thank you so well, much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for, you know, doing this and for, and for breaking it down and for making me a little smarter and a lot less dumb. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.